Welcome to She Persisted. I'm your host, Sadie Sutton. Every Friday, I post interviews about mental health, dialectical behavioral therapy, and teenage life. These episodes break down my mental health journey, teach skills to help you cope with life, and showcase testimonials from individuals, including teens just like you. Whether you've struggled yourself or just want to improve your mental fitness, this podcast is your inspiration to live a life you love and keep persisting. This week on She Persisted. When your parents sign you over to this school, they sign over guardianship. It's 51% of custody. They can make all decisions on your behalf. You're owned by a corporation for a year. And then all you're thinking about when you're there is, I mean, I'm having fantasies about reuniting with my family and putting them on a pedestal and putting my life and my treatment and all of these things that I, you know, I just want to get better. I just want to change. I just want to conform. This week's DBT skills, the accept skill. When you're in crisis mode or your level of distress is above a 7 or an 8 out of 10, you're going to use crisis survival skills or distress tolerance skills. The accept skill falls into this category and is a super simple way to remember the different ways that you can distract yourself to lower your emotional distress and get through a crisis. So ACCEPTS is an acronym that stands for Activities, Contributing, Comparisons, Emotions, Pushing Away, Thoughts, and Sensations. So Activities. Engaging in activities, reading, writing, running, listening to music, literally any activity, that's the A. Contributing. This is doing something for someone else, whether you are doing a favor for them, community service, volunteering, helping a friend through something, going and helping someone move in their house. These things take your mind off your current emotions. Comparisons. This is comparing your current emotional state to a different point in your life, whether this was yesterday, an hour ago, last week, really just juxtaposing what you're currently feeling with another state of emotions to kind of put in perspective what's going on. Emotions. Cultivating different feelings than you're currently experiencing. If you're feeling really sad, listening to songs that boost your mood, watching a TV show that makes you laugh, bringing out a different sensation in yourself. Pushing away. This is compartmentalizing, but in a healthy way because you'll revisit it. If you're feeling a lot of stress about an upcoming event that isn't serving you to kind of ruminate about, you will push it away, put it in the back of your mind, distract yourself and move forward and at a later point, revisit the situation. Thoughts. This one is really helpful if you are in an anxiety spiral. So this is changing your thoughts to the current pattern in your mind when you're in a crisis. So if you're having a panic attack and all you can think about is what's going on around you or an interaction you had, something that's coming up, whatever it is that you're stressing about, thinking about a song you like, a TV show, anything other than your current thoughts, switching up that dialogue, really helpful. And the last one is sensations. Five senses, grounding yourself in the situation. What, what do you see around you? What can you feel? What do you smell? What do you hear? What do you taste? Using those sensations to bring you back to the current moment in the present and calm down. So that is the accept skill. Again, we use this in crisis mode when your level of distress is really high. If we're constantly distracting, we will never be able to process through emotions. And when we avoid, things get bigger and more overwhelming. So in crisis mode, this is a great skill, but not for 24-7. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of She Persisted. This is a good one. You guys are not ready. Such an amazing episode. So before we dive into that, what's been going on? 
I was on TV this week. I did my first ever TV interview on my local ABC7 news channel. I will link it in today's show notes if you want to watch it. It was like the most surreal, crazy experience. I talked about my podcast and my story for Mental Health Awareness Month, which is May, and it was just crazy. It was live. I was sweating so much. I was so nervous. Definitely used some skills in that moment, but it was just the most crazy, amazing, exciting experience. I also got my driver's license this week, which I know it's taken me so long to do, but I I got it and that was really exciting and jumping right into Q&As this week. My first question that I got was, can you please talk about how you deal with trick? So I'm going to link an episode for you in the description about exposure therapy and OCD. So trichotillomania is um, an anxiety disorder and below that it's kind of a, a branch of OCD. It's an obsessive behavior and it's a compulsion that's done. And so that episode breaks down this philosophy in way more detail. So to kind of wrap that up and give you a more succinct answer, the first thing is awareness. Because it's a compulsive behavior, it's not something that I always notice. I have observed that it's really linked to my stress levels and how my mental health is doing. So if I'm more anxious, I'm more depressed, I notice that I struggle with trick more. And if you don't know what trick is, it stands for trichotillomania and it's compulsive hair pulling. I had to explain that. <laughs> but yeah, so when my when my mental health is struggling, I notice that trick flares up. And so the first thing is bringing awareness to the behavior. If you're doing it subconsciously, it's really hard to change behaviors if you don't even realize that they're going on. So I'm really just trying to be aware of when that's happening. That's the first thing. The next thing is to do a little bit of exposure therapy. When you notice that you're engaging in that behavior, resisting in that compulsion for as long as possible, whether that's five seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, an hour, or as long as possible and as you build that muscle of coping you'll be able to improve your ability to resist the urge to hair pull another tip i want to give is recognizing hair pulling as a compulsion from the ocd perspective ocd is a mental disorder and your your brain is sending you faulty communications it's telling you that there's a threat it's telling you that there's something going on you're you're compulsively doing a behavior to satisfy some emotional need when that isn't necessarily factual or, or true. So if you can recognize when you're having an anxious thought or when you're having the compulsion and kind of saying to yourself, this is my OCD right now. This is my brain telling me that something is a threat when it's not actually happening. And this is emotionally distressing when I'm feeling is totally valid and these thoughts are not factual. Kind of breaking up that, that loop in your head can be really helpful in breaking that cycle. And then the last tip I'll give is there are these little fidget balls. I don't really know how to explain them, but they have lots of like strings on them that you can like pull. If you know the game Ogospore, it's like those balls. I'm going to link one in the description for you because I don't know what they're called, but they really do mimic the sensation of hair pulling. You could pull out every single string in the ball if you wanted to, or you can just kind of like tug at them. But having those on hand have been huge for me. That is a recommendation from, from my therapist. She T turned me on to those and I love them. I think it's such a great tip and it's it's a small fidget to keep in your bag, keep it home and kind of replace that behavior. So yeah, that is my quick tips and trick. My quick tips and oh my god, this is a tongue twister. That is my quick tips and tip. Ah, oh my god, this is so hard. This is my quick tips and tricks for trick. So I hope that was helpful. The next question that I'm going to answer, and this is going to be the last one because this is already a long intro and I have so much more to say and then the episode is long, but it's just so good, so it's okay, is what do your friends from treatment understand about you that your current friends don't? This is spot on for this week's episode because um, Sydney, who's a guest this week, and I completely connected and our experiences, hers were 
way more physically and emotionally traumatic, way more unethical, unethical in treatment. But the feelings of isolation and and being in that experience for a year plus at a time is something that the average teen or friend wouldn't understand. And so I think there are so many parts of that industry and having navigated that that people don't get unless you've been through it, unless you've been in treatment for months on end and isolated and all of these different things that are super unethical, not normal. And again, that the average teen doesn't experience like I could never explain that fully to my friends. I don't think they could ever fully understand it. And there's that huge gap. And I'm totally okay with that because my friends at home, my friends at school, my current friends, like you outlined, the need that they serve is not to help me process through my treatment or to understand my treatment or validate me in that. They're there to be a support system and make me laugh. And I'm there to do the same for them and have healthy, strong relationships and people to hang out with and navigate high school with. And so I think... There is that that huge difference in understanding. It's like I lived a different life that these other people get, but I don't feel like it's a loss in my current relationships because the the need there is different. The the role that they're encompassing is completely different. If that makes any sense at all. I don't know if that I hope that makes sense, but that is something from that my friends from treatment get is just how bizarre that whole year was, the emotions, the the thoughts, the healing that is involved after that my current friends don't get. So with that being said, this week's episode is an amazing sit-down discussion with a woman named Sydney Montana. We dive into a bunch of detail about her experience at Cross Creek, which was a treatment facility in um, Utah. So I want to give some education before this episode. I want to give some disclaimers. Anything talking about the troubled teen industry does come with some legal red tape as I've learned. But guys, I talked to a lawyer. So disclaimers, this discussion that Sydney and I have is all opinion-based. The goal of this is to not come at anyone, whether it's Cross Creek or certain individuals. These are opinions. And the goal of this episode is really to raise the question of what can we do to shift this industry? How can we make treatment more ethical, effective, and evidence-based and compassionate for teens? And how can you heal and process after going through this experience? So with that being said, I want to give you a little bit of context that I feel is helpful when understanding the troubled teen industry. And I've been having so many conversations in my personal life recently, whether it's with teachers or friends or other adults about the troubled teen industry because it's something that I'm really passionate about, but it's really a secret world. Unless you've been in treatment or you know someone close to you that's been in treatment in the troubled teen industry, you wouldn't know it exists. So when I say troubled teen industry, I am referring to a set of programs, and that is wilderness programs, boot camps, behavioral modification programs, therapeutic boarding schools, rehab programs, and religious programs. And I am sure that within each of these realms, within each of these little subsets, there are ethical programs. I'm sure there are amazing treatment providers and doctors and people have had great experiences. Broadly, that's the umbrella that is referred to as the troubled teen industry, and I will link a bunch of information and resources about it below so you can learn more. But those are the types of programs that I'm referring to. And the troubled teen industry is a completely, again, different industry than the normal treatment industry. I've talked so many times about my positive experience at 3 East McLean Hospital, which I'll also link in the description, which was a residential program. So there are lots of great options for treatment for teens. I had an amazing individual, Evan Haynes, on the podcast. I think it was two weeks ago. They offer teen addiction treatment. I'll link that below. There are so many great resources for teen treatment. The the realm where it becomes problematic and unethical is what's been deemed the troubled teen industry. 
That is something that is developed completely separately from this other industry of ethical programs. And you can hear about this in so much more detail in um, the episode with Evan, which I'll link below because it's just a crazy interesting story. But there was a cult in the 1950s called Synanon, and they used these super harsh behavioral modification techniques. Lots of like verbal attacks and abuse. And from that came a bunch of different programs of people that really latched onto this idea. They found it effective. They wanted to create similar programs after it got shut down. And, and that turned into a program called Daytop, another one called Phoenix House, a third one called Sea-Doo, and then lastly, Synanon directly opened a teen boot camp. And so this was in the mid-70s, and then in the 80s and the 90s, there were almost 100 boot camps that were opened specifically for teens. So going back to these programs that I just mentioned, Daytop was opened in 1963, and it was anti-drug programs for teens. And the quote that they used tying it to Synanon is that the founders saw possibilities in Synanon. Um, and directly from Daytop developed something called Elon School, and that's from 1970 to the present, and that is a main program that uses the boxing ring and physical fighting for therapy. So going back to Synanon, the second program that I mentioned was called Phoenix House. That opened in 1967 and is still open today, according to the graphic that I'm using, which I'll link. So if it's not open, I at the time of this recording was not aware of that and they have a hundred sites in nine states and they call them residential academics for teens and from that came a program called the seed which was open from 1970 to 2001 and when it was investigated and shut down they described its methods as brainwashing and that was in 1974 from the seed came a program called straight inc and that was open from 1976 to 1993 and this was actually very publicly promoted by Nancy Reagan but it was closed due to abuse lawsuits. So from Straight Inc we had three different outputs. We had Kids Inc which was open from 1984 to 1998 and they've paid over 10 million dollars for child abuse settlements. Pathway Center which was from 1993 to the present day and that was founded by someone that worked at Straight Inc. And the third output of Straight Inc. were Christian programs. So these are tough love programs with religious influences. And so that's programs like New Horizons, Youth Ministries, Love and Action, which which use the Straight Inc. model to quote-unquote cure teens that identify as gay, which is completely unethical and not okay. So the other programs that we outlined in the troubled teen industry, again, we have wilderness programs, and those started in 1946. Since there, there are a couple big ones, Challenger, Summit Quest, North Star Expeditions. Those have all closed because of kids have died in these programs. We also have behavioral modification programs, and these were inspired by Skinner philosophies. If you're familiar with psychology, behavioral modification 101, he did this experiment with rats to see how behavior was changed, and that's exactly how these programs were developed. And so two huge schools there are Rodenberg and Provo Canyon, which you might recognize because Paris Hilton attended that school. Extremely abusive, unethical, and still open. And lastly, we have, which Sydney mentions in this episode, is a huge association that came out of this in the troubled teen industry, which is the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs. And this was started by a Provo Canyon staff member but the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs, they are also referred to as the Youth Foundation, Inc. And it's an umbrella of corporate organization, teen behavioral modification programs. They also have boot camps and therapeutic boarding schools. And it was created by Robert Lynchfield in the 1990s. And it is one of the largest troubled teen industry corporations. And they have dozens of facilities, both in the U.S. and abroad. And they had over 20 of their programs shut down because of abuse and neglect. And the, the 
the organization itself has been dissolved, but many of these programs are still open or have severed ties, but might still have the same staff members and are still operating with really similar program models, staff members, practices, and, and it's just a mess. I am on their website as I'm recording this introduction and there's at least 30 different programs that I'm reading on here that are still open that were associated with WWASP. And so that is what Sydney is referring to when she talks about WASP programs, which her school was a member of. So, I'm sure that's very overwhelming. That's a lot of information, dates, names, and places just thrown at you. The point of this is just to communicate how widely the troubled teen industry has spread its roots, how many people it is impacting, and explain that this is not an isolated instance. This is not one program that Sydney attended. This is thousands of kids, hundreds of programs, billions of dollars, and programs that are still open. So, quick numbers to throw at you. There have been over 145 children that have died from preventable causes in residential treatment centers. At least 62 of them were from asphyxiation and injury caused by restraints. There is little to no oversight over these treatment programs for troubled teens in the United States, and that's why this is something that is being advocated for so heavily right now. You've probably seen it in the news. It's because states like Montana, Utah, they have no legal oversight into these programs. There is no federal legislation protecting the physical, emotional rights of the kids in these programs. Sydney and I talk about this in the episode, but your right to contact parents, contact an attorney, have your own treatment provider. You can be kept physically safe. Like, these are not rights that are federally protected, and there are being big strides taken to, to, create that legislation. Utah just passed a bill about a month ago creating some some regulations in the state, but there's a long way to go. There are hundreds of treatment programs still open and we're not there yet. So before I wrap up this introduction with way too much information, way too many names, some numbers for you. The annual profit of the troubled teen industry is $1.2 billion. Again, zero federal legislations exist on therapeutic boarding schools anywhere in the United States. There are 50,000 children in these facilities every single year, and you need no clinical credentials to run a therapeutic troubled teen program. None. You can open one tomorrow if you wanted to. I like so badly want John Oliver to do an episode on this, expose everything, and then at the end open a troubled teen program for kids that are being abused in these actual programs. I think it would be hilarious. But all of this to say, it's a massive industry. 50,000 kids. Think about how many staff members are employed by this industry. $1.2 billion, hundreds of programs, over a thousand, sorry. Just explaining to you the sheer reach of these of this industry before we dive into this extremely powerful story from Sydney because it's not an isolated situation. So with that being said, I will link resources on how to find red flags of these programs ethical treatment options for teens. Again, I mentioned Aloe, Three East. I'll give you a list of other ethical-based treatments, advice for parents. All of that kind of stuff will be in today's description because this episode is not just to tell you about these crazy things, drop you with it, and move on. The point of this is to raise the question of how can we bring change to this industry? How can we create more regulation so kids can get safe and ethical treatment that saves lives rather than ruining them? So again, all opinions. Amazing episode. Thank you, Sydney, for coming on the podcast. Let's dive into it.
Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Of course. So can we start by you telling me a little bit about yourself, a little bit about who you are and kind of your your mental health story pre-treatment? Absolutely. So my name is Sydney. I grew up in downtown Chicago. I have, (laughs) I lived my whole life in the city. So my whole life was really within a five mile radius in downtown. I experienced treatment and interventions with my mental health very early on. I would say around like six to seven years old, I started seeing a therapist because my parents actually thought that I had issues hearing them, but it actually (laughs) turned out that I just had selective listening, (laughs) which is kind of interesting. And that kind of led me into having some other experiences with group therapy as a very young child as well. And so I really struggled from young age with getting along with my peers, with teachers, with authority figures, with the people in my life that I felt like I had to explain myself to. And everything else in my life was seemingly fine. I always had food on the table. I always had like, I had a, you know, a seemingly really good upbringing, especially compared to how my family grew up, which they grew Mm -hmm. up in a very, very different financial and economic circumstance. My parents were never too physically abusive. I feel like as a young kid, They just, I I noticed very early on that I experienced depression as well as just kind of feeling like I did not belong at a very, very Mm -hmm. young age Mm -hmm. and which now I'm starting to identify more in my journey as I'm older as kind of having an addictive personality very, very early on. So that's kind of how, I mean, how things started in Chicago Mm -hmm had twin brothers that were two years younger than me. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Adopted. So I was adopted at birth and it's a very fascinating story. I did not know much about my biological family until I was 21 years old. I always knew that I was adopted. It was something that my parents told me at a very young age, which I kind of commend them for that. I will say just to start this off that you know, as much as I, I'm very accountable for all of my experiences and behavior in a lot of ways. And I don't want to ever blame my parents or blame my situation on anyone else because their trauma and their experience and their way of living was what kind of formed their parenting. Mm -hmm. And they did adopt me. And that's amazing. However, I do not ever feel that they had the emotional intelligence or the knowledge (laughs) or the, like, they never sought out the education to understand what it would be like to adopt a child. And I was, you know, I was adopted at birth. I was never in an orphanage. I was never laying on the street. Like I had had that trauma, you know, basically ripped from my mom. I don't remember that. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting, and I never really 
ever wanted to use that as an excuse of anything in my life because I just, you can't remember those things. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as I look back and look at my experience growing up, I realize how much that that impacted me and how my parents and their trauma impacted me as well. So after they adopted me, I my parents actually got pregnant with IVF. So they had my twin brothers mm-hmm. shortly after me, about a year and a half later. So I was like less than two years old when, <laughs> or I guess I was two years old when they had my brothers. Oh my and gosh. so it went from me being this only adopted child at a very, very young age to all of a sudden I have twin brothers. And they actually said that very early on, I keep saying that I, I, um, <laughs> had displayed behaviors that were very that were very emotionally triggering for them such as I would bite my brother's fingers in which <laughs> my mom said that I would try to get him to throw up because he had acid reflux I mean I doubt a 3-year-old knew that yeah. they were able to throw up throw up because of acid reflux because I bit his finger however <laughs> I think that that kind of thinking and my parents not understanding the trauma from adoption nor understanding their own trauma impacted the way that I was able to perceive the world at such a young age. And they did not know how to explain that to me. So I always kind of felt like I was this misbehaved child. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's so many parallels to kind of my experience as well with feeling like you didn't belong or or loved in your home environment and then not having that reason to be depressed, which just adds a whole nother layer to accepting what you're going through because you're looking for that one trauma or that one loss, whatever it is, all those questions they ask you to see if you've experienced a big change in your life or why you're depressed and you just don't know what it is. So you're like, there are so many people that are almost like more deserving of being depressed because there's no reason I shouldn't be depressed. I'm so lucky in so many ways and yet you feel that way and it's even more overwhelming. So totally relate to that. Kind of diving into, oh, before I dive into the next thing, I think I wanted to also mention whenever I talk about people's experiences in the troubled teen industry, I always like to mention how much compassion I have and I'm sure you'll feel the same way I have for parents who've navigated it because this is an industry that's speaking to your pain points. There saying, I see you, your worst fear has come true, which is that your child's in pain and we can help you. We can solve your problems. This is the fix. And you, many parents, first of all, aren't equipped to navigate that treatment industry and that emotional journey, but they've also not been in that situation to be critical of the different treatment providers and the different people they're interacting with and working with. And so unless you've been really in that industry, a lot of the times as an adolescent, to have that critical eye and be like, that's a red flag. That's not great. This is not going to end up well for this kid. Parents just aren't don't know how to do that. They're they're not equipped to navigate it and they shouldn't feel like they should have to because it's something that it takes years for people to really understand. So before we get any further into that, just so much compassion for for parents who are navigating that because I think afterwards when they hear about these experiences, there's so much guilt. And I think going into it, the intentions are a lot of time from a place of love and care, even though it it doesn't always seem that way on the other side. But yeah. Absolutely. And that's why I also wanted to give that disclaimer at the beginning of this, because again, I, you know, I do not think that anyone, I mean, I can't say that for everyone, but I doubt that any 
parent intentionally wants to torture or traumatize their child in any way, shape or form. And I can explain some of the complexity and how interesting it was navigating the situation and maybe some of the insights as to why parents go in this direction that they do. Because yeah, it's it's Mm -hmm. a wild ride. And it is changing so much here in the United States and changing so much state by state. And when I I've gone through so many different experiences in high schools and obviously programs and troubled teen groups. And I've met so many varieties of children and teenagers and adults older than me that have gone through these experiences. And it is all, they're all so different and they're all equally troubling. And they're also, there's many levels and layers that go into the parent's decision. Totally, totally. So with that being said, let's dive into your experience within the troubled teen industry, kind of diving in first off to your your journey to that point and kind of what that was like and getting there and then diving into to that experience when you were actually there. Absolutely. So what a wild ride without giving away my whole book of secrets before <laughs> the program. I just feel like from the age of eight years old until 12 and 13 years old, I would consider myself, and I do not like to use this name, I just want to say I was troubled. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate labels. And I wouldn't want to say that about myself. I was such a young girl that didn't understand what was happening. But I need to describe it just first off <laughs> to be able to say mm-hmm. what I what I can even imagine that I was like living with me. I just had, again, so many issues with being bullied, bullying other children, having displays of things in classrooms where, you know, before I reached high school, I was just constantly acting out for attention from my parents. And, you know, at that time, I remember thinking about, you know, the whole idea of acting out for attention and being like, that's stupid. I'm not looking for attention. <laughs> but obviously, as a young kid, you cannot process those things. And I remember going home to my parents and explaining to them what was happening to me at school. And they would say to me, well, what did you do to them? And again, they're getting the feedback from teachers saying that I'm acting crazy and I'm displaying these things, you know, calling kids names, doing behavioral things that are crazy acting promiscuous. I was involved in so many extracurricular activities. I toured the world as a child with the Chicago (laughs) Children's Choir, and I was extremely talented. And from sixth grade to eighth grade, I was in very high, like very high performance and high caliber training for this kind of choir that I was in. And my Mm -hmm. parents were extremely proud of me. But I started to display things that were, and I'm talking about myself in the way that I would hate to just hate <laughs> to talk about myself in, but I'm trying to explain it the best way possible. I just had so many issues getting along with people, so many issues with my relationships. And when I would go home and explain to my parents what was going on, I think that, and this is me with my analysis now, I did not know this then. I didn't know this when I got out of the troubled teen industry that I was 
not able to find validation in my feelings from my authority figures and from the people that were supposed to love me does not mean they're bad. Again, it's their own trauma. So I would go home and I would be extremely depressed to the point where when I was in eighth grade, I did try to commit suicide. So I tried to take pills. I tried to kill myself. And then I started to smoke weed with my friends, drink alcohol, act promiscuous. I was seeking out and finding a whole new group of friends outside of the circle that I grew up in a very confined Catholic school environment. I had to find people that would get along with me. And those people just happened to be kids that were probably from situations where they were not being validated with their feelings or even the opposite where their parents were overly bonded to them and they, you know, had displayed issues. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of pre, so that was, that was literally eighth grade before I had even gotten into high school. By the time I went into high school, I was drinking every single day. I was hanging out with the wrong people, doing absolutely anything. I mean, Mm -hmm. stealing, running around the neighborhood, being destructive in so many ways that I do not even like to describe. And that was just so early on that I had felt like I had lived 20 lifetimes by the time I was 14 years old. Yeah. And then I had gone to, I was in, so I had gone, when I was 13, I was, I had tried to commit suicide and I was in a treatment facility for that for however long. And I was also on medication from a very young age as well. Mm -hmm. And at, you know, when you're on them so young, I mean, my thoughts about these things are so crazy now. And now I'm like very, very against all this stuff. But I will say that I think that my opinions about medication at such a young age have changed and their effectiveness, like their, the ideas of them being effective are so different because I feel like when you're so young and you're put on them and I'm talking about third grade, your third grade, when I was put on them, that you don't have a real experience and maybe your body gains a tolerance and maybe they're not as effective because you're, you're on them at such a young age. I mean, I was, yes, I was, you know, a little bit behaviorally off, but I was not having extreme psycho disorders that would require me to literally be medicated in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I was so young. And like I said, I just did not find that validation at home. So around 14 years old, I'm in my freshman year of high school. I'm getting expelled every week. I'm having extreme incidences to the point where I actually chose to go to a rehab facility. Mm -hmm. And in the rehab facility, I spent 30 days in there, spent my 15th birthday in there where I told myself, And I was introduced into the Alcoholics Anonymous program, which I definitely needed at the time. And I was convinced that that would be the start of whatever life. So I get out of this 30-day treatment center. It was beautiful. It was in (laughs) Southern Illinois. It was like a dream, pretty much. I mean, I had access to therapy. My parents would visit me on a regular basis. I could call them. I worked with a therapist Mm -hmm. and it was, you know, I was out probably 10 days and relapsed and Mm -hmm. I was in an outpatient treatment group that I would go to almost every day after school where I was supervised and, you know, tried to enforce the ideas of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I probably lasted like like I said, like 10 days actually sober. 
from anything before, you know, I was literally there for 30 days, shoved back into my normal environment. This week's episode is sponsored by Teen Counseling. I cannot tell you guys how many DMs, texts, emails I get from teens, parents, even friends asking, how can I find a therapist? How can I enroll in therapy? How can I find a therapist for my teen? How do I tell my parents I want to go to therapy? That's why I'm partnering with Teen Counseling. Teen Counseling is an online therapy program with over 14,000 licensed therapists in their network. They offer support on things like depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, and more, and it's all targeted at teens. They offer text, talk, and video counseling. So no matter what level of support you're looking for, they got you. You're going to go to teencounseling.com slash she persisted. You'll fill out a quick survey about what your goals are for therapy, whether that's improving your mental health during the pandemic, working on your relationship with your parents, improving self-esteem, whatever it is, they'll match you with therapists that fit your needs. You'll enter your information and your parents' information. Your parents will get a super discreet email saying your child is interested in working with a licensed therapist at teencounseling.com. They head to the website, learn a little bit more about the program, and a preview to work with a therapist. And from there, you can meet with that therapist on a frequency that works for you. This is a great way to dip your toe into the therapy world and get support when you need it without having to go into an office, meet with a therapist, meet with a stranger, and go through all of that for the first time. So you can go to teencounseling.com slash she persisted. Again, that's teencounseling.com slash she persisted to get started today. So about a month or two later... After the school had let me back in, I basically, and there's, we'll have to do another thing with the <laughs> another story that happened that's kind of crazy, but I do not want to glamorize any of those situations. But basically, I'm expelled from the school. Eventually, I was arrested. I'm, I'm 14 years old, mm-hmm. or I guess 15 years old. And I basically had this idea in my mind that... I don't know what I'm going to do in my life. And I basically failed my freshman year of high school after kind of growing up in this way that I was kind of had, I had the opportunities and the trajectory to be so successful. And Mm -hmm. I just knew in the back of my mind, you know, like things will change. I'll figure it out. Like, you know, maybe I'll go and look at programs or other schools to go to. Like, I kind of knew that something was off with myself. And then I needed to find something to change. But at that point, I had no idea of anything. So I'm expelled from school. I actually was planning this insane party. This was the thing that I did (laughs) not want to glamorize. But it was like the beginning days of Facebook. I'm planning this party that I'm really excited for. I'm taking money from my mom's wallet. I'm orchestrating alcohol drugs and everything else in my neighborhood. So that way kids could actually attend a house party while my parents were out at work. And I, my plan was that I would actually clean this up before they got home. And (laughs) so one day it's like May 13th, 2008. Mm -hmm. And I am sitting at my computer my I didn't have a phone on the time at the time because it was stolen. But this was like the very beginning days of Facebook and Google. And maybe like I had a sidekick, so maybe I could have Googled something or whatever. My dad comes to my room and he goes, Hey, we're gonna go look at a boarding school. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, <laughs> are there cute boys there? Like, I'm like, you know, at that point, I'm like, I kind of get it. Like, maybe I have to go somewhere. I get it. Like, it's cool, whatever. And 
my mind, I remember asking him, I'm like, well, what's the name of the school? Mm-hmm. And he told me that he did not remember. Red flag number one. Yeah. And what's <laughs> weird is as smart as I was, I did not catch on mm-hmm. at all. Like I just was not catching on. So I remember contemplating to myself this. I'll just say the story as we go because it's funny and not really, but it, it's <laughs> like, I was going to put as my Facebook status, like, Hey, I'm going to go and look at a school because my dad said, we're going to fly into Vegas and then we're going to drive from Vegas to Utah. And then I would be back by the next evening. And I thought to myself, well, if I do that, maybe then kids will think that the party is off. So I just mm-hmm. decided that I would not update my Facebook status because I was like, well, I don't want people to think that my party is off. Yeah. So anyway, that was that night. And then that next day, my dad and I get on a flight to Vegas in which we were both separated on the plane. And that did also not red flag me. I'm like, oh, well, just sitting <laughs> separate from him, whatever. You know, I'm a young girl. I think I had my iPod or something. And it makes so much sense, though, because I think especially with these situations, which this is what takes so much healing is your parents are the two, in many cases, two individuals that you look up to more than anyone else. You have so much trust in a lot of cases, love. You would never expect them to lead you wrong. And they're not intending to do that again in these situations. But you're not looking for red flags. This isn't a stranger that's telling you about a school. It's your it's your parents. And so that's why it's so hard to notice these things. Absolutely. So I'm like. I get to the Vegas airport. My dad and I drive from there to Utah about an hour and a half. And I remember thinking in my head, like, it is really, you know, it's getting towards sunset. Like, what type of school is this? I'm not even asking him details because (laughs) I just thought we were looking at a random school. And this Mm -hmm. is like, this is right in the cusp of this information era where I had access, right? Like, Like I said, I didn't have my cell phone on me. You know, I, I kind of, I remember Google earth was around. If I would have gotten an address, I would have looked at the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I just remember that the sun was setting and that seemed like a peculiar time for a a tour of a school. Mm -hmm. And then, um, we're pulling up to, we actually drove past it initially because it did not look like a treatment facility or I'm sorry, a a boarding school. It looked like a motel with gates around it. And I was like, (laughs) what is that? So then we pull back up to the school. I see a person standing on this side of the parking lot, that side of the parking lot. And I walk through these doors into kind of like a, like a little house outside of the, the building. Mm -hmm. And this woman sits me down and it's literally like five seconds. And she's like, Hey, this is cross Creek. We have this many boys and this many girls and your father's enrolling you tonight. And I remember like the first thing that I said was like, I was like, oh, you mean like stay the night? Yeah. Like it was like over visit. (laughs) No, I I, I knew what she meant. Like Mm -hmm. I knew I was like, oh, yeah, not sleepover visit. I knew that she was like about to like, oh, my gosh, like stay Mm -hmm. the night for a while. Like, yeah. And she was like, yes. And at that point, like I stand up or something and two, those two people from the parking lot come and restrain me and they grab my arms and they're like, you know, very quickly, they're like, you could say goodbye to your dad. And I'm just looking at him and he's like, got, you know, this face of horror. And he's like, 
there's nothing else I could do, you know? And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, are you kidding me? Where the freak am I? Because Mm -hmm. again, I had already been in treatment situations and Mm -hmm. I was like, there is no way that this is anything like whatever I had experienced previously. So putting in perspective, how long were you given to say goodbye to your dad when he dropped you off? 34 seconds. Like, yeah, I mean, literally that long. And I didn't even, I refused to hug him. I was like, I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. This is crazy. You're like, it's, he'll be here in a second. Like no idea what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. So they start taking me from, you know, they're holding both of my arms and pulling me through the gates in which I did not leave those gates even to go to a dentist appointment for nine months. Oh my God. So I was literally brought through these gates. And I remember the questions that I asked them from the gates to the room where I was brought to. And I was like, how long am I like, how long am I going to be here? And they Mm -hmm. were like, minimum six months. But that's like a trick, I guess, because it's actually minimum a year. And it's not actually minimum a year. It's 15 Mm -hmm. months. Yeah, minimum, like average. So Mm -hmm. and you have to earn your way out. So they were like, just trying to like get you to calm down kind of thing. And I just remember like, there was no one warm or welcoming. It was not like in the rehab I had been to. It was not like, in outpatient where you're given attention and respect and your questions are answered in a calm way. Like I was being like detained. Yeah. And yeah. so I was and another, up. another thing, which I also think would be interesting to ask is do you, at this point, do you see any other quote unquote students or patients, whatever you want to call them it at this school? So this was a time. And I, I wonder if it was because the time that they brought me there, it was probably, like later at night and they Mm -hmm. might've done that on purpose. And that was, I did not see the students until they brought me and you do not see the boys. That's just something they say when they enroll you to get you. (laughs) I just think that the boys are on a completely separate side. You do not see them. And I was brought into a room with five upper level girls. Okay. And so I'm brought into a room where basically they start to kind of wind you. The girls are kind of taught to wind you down. And, you know, as I reached higher levels, I would actually do this to women as other girls as well, young girls. Yeah. So we would take out our piercings, take out our hair tie, take out our shoelaces, anything that we could self-harm with because I was a suicidal kid. And I remember being like, you know, trying to like pull the suicide card because, I mean, I probably was suicidal and they were just Mm -hmm. like, well, good thing that we're taking your shoelaces. They do that. They they treat everyone in the same way, everyone's program might be different because of the way that they treat themselves. But they treat everyone, but they treat everyone the same way. So basically, I was brought into a room, these girls start to, you know, try to calm me down. And I'm like, where am I? And I'm swearing and this and that. And they're telling me that I cannot swear. And then when I went to mouth the word, like the F word, they told me I could not mouth the F word. And I was like, where am I? I'm like, this is insane. I'm like, there cannot be a place that is telling me how I can talk about these things or, you know, what to say and not say. But I guess that's where I am now. And, you know, I, so from in that night, they, yeah, they take out your shoelaces. They put you in a bright yellow shirt and I was immediately taken into the bed, you know, the, the bedroom that I was in with three other girls in which there were two bunk beds 
And there was a girl that was given to me as a buddy that was on a higher level. And she basically told me, you need to get in your bed and you're no longer allowed to talk after that. So once you're in your bed, you cannot communicate verbally, non-verbally, and the staff walks in every 15 minutes with a flashlight, pretty much your whole program to check on you. And so I was probably completely erratic for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I remember back to the questions that I was asking the two staff members, I said, okay, so when do I get to see my parents? And they go in six months. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. six months? And then, and remember, I'm an adolescent, like I'm a teenager in high school, like, I'm like, are you kidding me? And then they were like, well, actually, you know, and I said, well, what about, can I call them? And they said two months to call my parents and that I was allowed to write to them. So, I mean, you can imagine that it took a while to adjust where I was kind of living this crazy adult life as a teenager, all of a sudden to being in a lockdown facility in Southern Utah in a place that I had never been before around girls that I had never met in my life and Mm -hmm. being completely guided. You know, we were so intensely drained with therapy on a daily basis. Every part of our day was structured from morning till evening. I mean, Mm -hmm. I had to like run 10 laps every single morning in the courtyard. I had to line up in a hallway and show them my bra strap, the inside and outside of my socks every time that we left our bedrooms, even on a higher level. So it didn't matter if you proceeded in your program. Yes, you would get privileges like shaving your legs or whatever else. But that came like months and months and months later Mm -hmm. until you're completely conditioned to be able to do exactly as they say. And not, not only do you have to do as they say, you have to think as they want you to think. Because again, you can't express yourself. It's in a prison, you can express yourself and you could say, screw you. You cannot do that in this program. You have to literally conform. And at a certain point, I, and I would say that I am one of the like actual victims of this program because I believed that I was constantly being watched at a certain point. I And I was young, like there were girls there that were 17, 18. And like, I was not even like, I just turned 15 years old. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't know what was going on. And I just thought that they were watching me constantly. So Mm -hmm. even if I made the slightest little error, I would be accountable for it. And I would go and write up what they would call a category. And you're basically on a level system that has points and Mm -hmm. your staff and yourself are dependent on your program moving forward. And then your group has to vote on your like respectability to be able to move to the next category Mm -hmm. or move you to the next level. Yeah. It's crazy. It was insane. It was insane to say the least. Like even to comprehend trying to explain this to the average person, it does not like sound right because as Mm -hmm. much as I, and like, I do not want to downplay this place at all because this facility, particularly in Southern Utah, was one of the parts of the gr- the grander association of worldwide specialty programs that owned several programs in the country and around the world that would use the t- the tough love, troubled teen yeah. behavior modification methods that were basically like very torturous and not normal because Mm -hmm. it was in the state of Utah. They were able to operate with licenses, being able to take out the ability to act as a psych ward, a Mm -hmm. school and a rehabilitation center all in one. 
So they have the, so if you want to say you want to kill yourself, doesn't matter. If you want to, you know, attempt to kill someone, they're not going to bring you anywhere because they're able to operate in the, the ability that these hospitals and other treatment centers would be able to operate. And there is, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 98% sure that when your parents sign you over to this school, and I believe that this is very dependent on the state of Utah and a few other states, that they sign over guardianship. Okay, because that was what they did at my school. The first day, it's 51% of custody. So they can make all decisions on your behalf. You're owned by a corporation for a year. And it's what that does to you, especially if you're already feeling unloved or not good enough, you're then your parents are selling over and signing over their ownership of you. It's just, it's crazy. And then all you're thinking about when you're there is, I mean, I'm having fantasies about reuniting with my family and putting them on a pedestal and putting my life and my treatment and all of these things that I, you know, I just want to get better. I just want to change. I just want to conform. And luckily, I mean, luckily, like I was like, I'm not trying to say lucky I was brainwashed, but there were some girls there that refused to change and they lived a very crappy life there. I mean, I saw people taken out of school that were put on, I was put on a silence after 4 p.m. for over three months where I was not allowed to speak after 4 p.m. I did not say this on Recovery From Reality, and I really wanted to be able to state this here. They actually at one point had a mousetrap placed on my leg in in a therapy process trying to explain to me the risk of having premarital sex or sex outside the context of marriage not like a like a little mouse trap i'm talking mm-hmm. about like a rat trap oh like a loaded rat trap on my leg for an hour these oh people God. used absolutely any tactic that they could to break you down then build you back up tell you that they love you i mean why is somebody outside of my parents telling mm-hmm. me that they love me, but then also putting a mouse trap on my leg. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. And I'm in this world where I have absolutely no access to calling my parents, calling, they won't, they, for the whole time that you're there, they cut you off from anybody but immediate family. So yeah. you are only allowed to talk to your mom and dad. I don't think I've ever had a relationship with my brothers because uh, it was such a prominent time in my teenage years to be in the mm-hmm. school and probably the, you know, my brothers being so close in age that we basically never repaired or recovered our relationship because I was away for so long and I wasn't yeah. allowed to have contact with them. It's no, and it makes so much sense. Like all these different things that like why the relationship suffers, why it's so difficult, difficult to heal after with your parents and those relationships, because you're in these extremely formative years when you need that validation, you need that love, you need to be able to create healthy belief systems and a healthy chosen family. And you're not able to do any of these things that are crucial to growing up and becoming a teen and then an adult and building a healthy life for yourself. It's just all completely falsified in some small controlled environment that doesn't it doesn't transfer to the outside world. So it doesn't even logically make sense what's going on. Absolutely. And these people here, they had perfected this system. I mean, I, I stress this in RFF or RFR. I feel like I like they had perfected this system so much because they had 20 years of doing this where you would hear stories. Like for example, we weren't allowed to have stickers we were not allowed to have, like, we only had a spoon 
for the whole time that we were there. When we oh my would, God. like, we could not use a fork or a knife, like Crazy. things that like, even if you were on a higher level and you deserve those privileges, you were not really given that because someone else could have access to it. And because mm-hmm. they probably, they're so remote in the middle of nowhere. And if someone were to harm themselves or something like that, like they're not able to facilitate help for that. Yeah. So it's, I like, you know, a part of me understands that. And a part of mm-hmm. me is just like, it's still too crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, were there any psychologists on staff at this program? So all of our, I believe all of the therapists that were there were licensed marriage and family therapists Mm -hmm. and they were all men. So I'm with all women, with all men that are therapists and they basically control your entire life. They control, control your program. I was dropped all of my levels after six months but for picking out a pimple on my face because they told he told me that I was trying to self-harm. Oh my god. Crazy. Yes. Insane. It was um, a- and after that, I don't think that I was ever the same again in that program or probably in my life because I was terrified. Yeah. Like yeah. I was terrified. I felt so misunderstood, like there was nowhere to go, no nowhere to seek you know, seek any help. Like I would, you can't go up to staff and vent to them if it's not in an open time. And if you only get two hours a day that are, you know, one hour here and one hour there to talk to people or talk to staff, you don't really have that outlet and Mm -hmm. you're so controlled and so many people are monitoring you. Even our, even in our, our meals, we're also like structured. So you would have to listen to tapes while you were eating. Oh my God. Crazy. Crazy. We would, yeah, Um, crazy. So is your program still open? It is not. It was shut down. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I actually went back like like maybe four to five months ago. I actually went back there Mm -hmm. to check it out because it's now a motel, just like it looked like. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Isn't that crazy? Like Insane. And like the things I read online, like I I feel like I'm still brainwashed and I can't say what I even read online because there's allegations against the place saying that people were seriously tortured and that it was shut down for child abuse and neglect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I look at these things and this is on Wikipedia. And then there was a New York times article as well Mm -hmm. about cross Creek. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, the fact that they were able to operate like this. And I have, like I said, hundreds and hundreds of kids from so many different programs. And I will say this, this program and Provo Canyon School and a few other facilities that I've heard of heard of that are owned by the WASP Association, mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. are the only schools that I've seen as torturous as mine. Yeah. Like I just, the way that they went about just treating students and then like, again, making me also, I mean, at a certain point, you know, I'm so used to it that I didn't even want to leave. I have yeah. all of my journals from the place because they, and I feel like that's really interesting that they even let us write in journals. Like, it's like they control everything and like, you know, you, you had to monitor your letters going out and stuff like that because I'm like, well, what if they were reading these to my parents mm-hmm. or something like that? Mm-hmm. So I remember just like ma- painting a very cushy life to the outside world from these letters. And even in my journals, I could see myself kind of changing throughout the time that I was there. But I was living in this like alter, like I literally, when I read these journals, I look psychotic because I'm just living in this fantasy world, pretending what the world is like outside. Like 
Michael Jackson died while I was there. Obama was elected while I was there. Lady Gaga became a person. Like, I didn't even know who she was when I got out. And I was like a freak. So (laughs) for not knowing that. So it's so interesting to me. And I will say this, that the whole troubled teen, like, movement that's going on now with people raising awareness, it has really brought a lot of troublesome things that I like thought that I was going to shove down for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it brings up so many emotions. And it's crazy. Like you were talking about how many kids you've met, like, the stats right now are that there's 10,000 kids enrolled in these programs across the country, specifically within the troubled teen injury industry, which is wilderness behavioral modification, some residentials and therapeutic boarding schools. So it's just, it's insane. And just like we talked about, there in many cases the rights of over the kid are signed over you're not able to contact your parents and under individuals which in many states like we're in california that's a legal right if you're put in the hospital is to have open access to a phone to be able to write write letters be able to talk to an attorney your own treatment provider all of these things are right that any human is supposed to have and yet for kids in these situations they're completely stripped away and you you lose your identity you lose your trust for everyone around you it's just it's it's very damaging so kind of diving into after that what was it like re-entering back into into your world and what what did you have to heal from after what were the long lasting effects of being in a crazy crazy terrible program for for so long absolutely i mean i remember just number 1 being so It took me, like, I was so confident and so excited to get out of there. I was like, my life is amazing. I'm so grateful because they build you up to feel that Mm -hmm. way. They Mm -hmm. actually build you a program that you have to type out on a computer with them watching you the whole time. That, like, you have to build a program for yourself when you leave. So I was not allowed to give myself a cell phone. Like, I had to write out my own rules for myself for when I left. I did the same thing. They called it a relapse prevention plan. Yeah. What I was like relapsing to, feeling like depressed or alone. I don't know exactly what the connection was there, but there were levels of rules and when I could drive and when I was allowed to hang out with friends and all that kind of stuff. It was Yeah, what type I had to list people in order of like A, B, C, D, and F, like friends. Mm -hmm. And like they had to write contracts if they wanted to hang out with me. I wasn't allowed to have a relationship. And I remember like all these fantasies and things that I would think about, like, you know, so I remember getting out and just being like very confident that I was just going to stick to this program and that's what I wanted to do. But then when you get back into the real world and I'm different than a lot of the girls there because a lot of the girls came from small towns where they did not have outlets like I did. I was going back to a big city into a school that was very small, but we had access to things. And, you know, it was like I was I I I immediately started feeling like a freak. I didn't look like myself. My clothes didn't fit me. I'm in a whole other place. My parents are breathing down my neck in a way that they never did before. It was extremely weird. And I remember just thinking to myself, why don't people get along if I'm such a good person and I do all of the right things? Why are people still mean to me? Why do people, because they build you in these programs to get along with everyone. And if you don't get along with anyone, you have to work them out with them. And Mm -hmm. in the real world, that is not facilitated for you. 
No. So even if you have those tools, when you, you know, and like you're in a structured environment, I'm in my high school and I'm getting in a disagreement with someone and I'm going and admitting my faults and saying all the things I did. <laughs> taking wrong. accountability. Like taking accountability. People just use that against you. Mm-hmm. And I realized that very quickly, but also I was so naive. I was spilling out my story to everyone, confessing how horrible I was before that place. Yeah. Bill, also, I think it made me think that everyone should have gone through what I went through. I'm oh, like, yeah. well, if only they had gone through it, maybe they would <laughs> understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If only they were like saved and had this amazing journey where they were able to find themselves. And it just, it's so not the case. This week's episode is brought to you by Sakara. You guys know how much I'm stressing the importance of good sleep, good nutrition, getting outside, staying active, because when we don't take care of our physical health, our mental health truly suffers as well. I know that my emotional vulnerability is off the charts when I'm not taking care of my physical health. I can't be productive. My relationships struggle and everything just becomes a mess. Sakara is a nutrition company that focuses on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. Their organic ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful plant-based ingredients and they're designed to boost your energy, improve digestion, and get your skin glowing. Their meals are delivered all around the U.S., ready to eat, at your door, and you are good to go. They also have some amazing wellness essentials, like one of my favorites, their sleep tea, which you know I love a good cup of tea before bed to keep my sleep hygiene in check. They also have things like beauty chocolates, like chocolate that you eat to help your skin, like literally mind blown. So many different supplements, teas, powders, granola, all of that kind of stuff. To get your hands on their amazing products, you can go to Saqqara.com and use code XOSADIE at checkout for 20% off. Again, that's Saqqara.com. Use code XOSADIE at checkout for 20% off your first order. So at what point were you kind of able to take a step back and you realize like, whoa, this was not the experience that I was tricked into thinking it was. This was very traumatic. And what was that like? What was that realization like? So I don't really, I can't even pinpoint the exact like year or time frame afterwards. Mm-hmm. I just know it was a few years later when Facebook groups started to pop up. Yeah. So we started to have like survivor Facebook groups and mm-hmm. we would relive these experiences. And this is even when the program was still running. And mm-hmm. I remember that they started to like loosen the rules in the program because I mean, think about it. This was before social media. So these places were able to operate, but if you have MySpace and Facebook and all these things yeah. and you get out and you're like telling the world, Hey, I was in a place that told me that I couldn't go to the bathroom after I ate dinner. Like you're, yeah. you're like, I mean, it's not going to get along very well with the rest mm-hmm. of humanity. Mm-hmm. So I think what these programs started to do in cross Creek, they started to kind of like, give more, you know, have more Mm -hmm. outings and do more things. And I remember seeing that online and being like, well, they should have done that when we were there. But like, (laughs) it was crazy because I thought to myself so long ago that I wanted to document and really write out these things. Even when I was in that school, I was like, this experience is so unique and I should be writing it down. And yes, I have these journals, but remember they're more like delusions. Like I had all of these things fresh in my mind, the therapy processes, the way that they made me not talk after certain times and put me in certain places and tell me what to do, how to talk, how to act, telling us that we had died and to write our eulogies. If they get picked out of a hat, we have to say our, you know, eulogy in front of people, these traumatizing processes that through the years, you forget about them and you, but, but there's some things that you do not forget. And I think that also they tell you that like your therapist there will kind of like guide you afterwards. 
And that relationship also fell apart, which I thought he loved me. I thought he was going to spend, I thought he was going to come visit me. And these people were my best friends. And you really have these insane attachments to the people that were there. And so I had a lot of really interesting experiences, but it was, it was probably like two to three years later, maybe three, four, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I became an adult and I realized, and only in the past few years was I like, I think that like, I no longer can relate to people that have gone through high school, even people that were troubled, that went through high school, that were kicked out, that something about me doesn't relate with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's just a whole nother level of an experience that was completely different. And no, it, it totally makes sense. It's just, it's crazy. I think if you asked anyone to recall every moment of nine months of their lives, even if it's just a couple hours of every day, because a couple hours was something that was completely unethical and immoral and, and traumatic. If you, no one can recall that much information and describe it to you in detail, especially when they were conditioned to believe it's normal. Absolutely. Our bodies naturally forget things that are normal. I don't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. If I think about it really hard, maybe I could, but four weeks ago, I won't. Like You don't remember these details because you were told it was normal. It was your day-to-day life and you're completely in a bubble. It's not like you're talking to anyone else. You remember what your real life is like because you are locked in this situation for months on end and it's just, it's crazy. So did you kind of reconcile with your parents after this experience or did you say, I need to take time for myself and process through that. What was that like kind of navigating those family relationships after you realized the the effects of this experience? Absolutely. So I was there for 15 months, by the way. Crazy. So I was there 15 months locked not, down. Not there nine months that they originally said. No, oh not at all. God. No, I was there 15 months and I was lucky because yeah. that was considered a short period of time for this program. And I will say this. I have severe, severe issues with forgiving my parents, but I have Mm -hmm. such severe attachment and abandonment, even at this age that I'm at now that I won't mention that (laughs) like, I just, I love them so freaking much. And I just don't know why they would put me through this. Yeah. And they remember, and I want to go back to this because we didn't get to touch on this why parents go through and pick these places because these places are looking for the parents that are their customer and their customer wants the tough love. They might not know the torturous things that they put us through and whatever else. And by the time your parents put six months down cash Mm -hmm. in, in the program, they're probably going to start to believe it. And they're even given conditioned, like they're given things that are doctrine about, Hey, you know, if your child complains of this, they're lying. If they Mm -hmm. say this, you know, don't believe them. It's manipulation. So my parents don't know left from right. And my mom has gotten to the point where she can understand a little bit more, but it's, I mean, if these are people that, and I, God bless them, Mm -hmm. they are avoidant and dismissive people. They are not going to be able to, to handle the fact that they did anything that was harmful. And I have in my group seen people that's parents have completely 180'd and have said, oh my gosh, this is awful. I cannot believe you experienced that. Mm-hmm. But if they, if these programs targeted who they wanted, they have a lifelong customer that believes yeah. in what they had. And, and my first parents, friends and family members and other teams. Yes, and- they recruited them just as strongly as they recruited me. I'm young. Mm-hmm. I have access to social media, technology, 
all of these things. My parents do not utilize those resources clearly. I mean, these places have had allegations since the early 2000s, even by Googling them. Mm-hmm. And people had gone to rescue their kids out of these programs it before I even got there. They had lawsuits. They had all these things. But if you did not have access to that information, and if you were the customer looking for this type of treatment for your child, and you were at a loss of what to do, these are the places. And it did get me to change. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, what can you say? And they say, they would tell us things like, you'll never be as bad as you were before you got here. And I remember always thinking of that because there's some things that they absolutely taught me, these things about accountability. Like, whether or not people made fun of me, I knew I was doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I really felt adamant about that. Yes, I experienced a lot of backlash for it, but I did learn a lot of tools that you cannot go back on. I was introduced to, you know, I was more thoroughly introduced into Alcoholics Anonymous and programs and religion while I was within this program that have facilitated, that have, that planted seeds for who I am now. So mm-hmm. I'm so, you know, I, I see people that are just beginning their recovery at an older age. And I'm like, I go, maybe it's my brainwash. I'm like, I wish that you would experience this younger because these seeds were planted so early on that I seek out so much assistance all the time. I did not just deny my parents. I want to understand them. I want to ask questions, but that doesn't mean that the other, that does not mean that your audience and the people that want to hear this are going to be the same towards that. Totally. No, it's 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 crazy. And kind of going back to the fact that these families are customers. Like you mentioned, your the school that you attended owned tons of other facilities within the United States. That's a very common thing because it's a corporation that that is operating under using these kids as customers and they're making crazy amounts of money. It's just insane. And I I've had similar experiences with being feeling very lucky for all the skills that I learned from having navigated treatment at a young age. And there are there are so many things that you learn and that I'm I'm glad to have experienced. And it's you're also forced to grow up too early. These experiences aren't things that you're meant to navigate at such a young age. You're not supposed to learn how to be truly accountable for all of your past mistakes and actions at 15. Like That's something you learn decades down the line. And so it's you learn these skills, but it's kind of at a loss of your childhood and these moments that you would have ha- had had you been at home. And it's it's a very sad thing to navigate. I think another thing recently that I've been thinking about is a lot of different girls that I've been in contact with who see a lot of the different experiences as very helpful or not as bad or, okay, it's not as bad as these other programs like the one you're talking about. And I think it's interesting and I've kind of come to the realization that for a lot of these people being taken out of their home environments they're not suffering as severely or behaviorally the presentation isn't as bad as it was at home. So it's almost better. And when they get back out and they sometimes relapse or go back to those behaviors, this time in their life is immortalized when they weren't engaging in those, when they weren't necessarily suffering as much. And I I feel so, I don't know if pity would be the right term because that sounds terrible, but the fact that that was the best best time frame when that suffering wasn't there. Those negative experiences weren't present. And it just, it makes me so sad. And I'm sure a lot of the result of the aftermath and being out of treatment and still struggling is because of the what you learn there and, and how you survive these programs by creating these relationships and and checking the boxes and, and being literally brainwashed to, to what they're trying to tell you. Yeah. I love the way that you just put that because I was listening to a podcast that was talking about 
young children when they out when they outlash behavior it's mm-hmm. actually not the child hating you it actually means that they feel comfortable enough to display that around you oh, so just like when I, immediately when you said that i thought of that because when i got to the program i did not really combat them yeah. i was like i'm going to listen because i was not comfortable around mm-hmm. the people that are supposed to care for you and emotionally give to you those are the people that you're going to display your biggest troubles with because they're supposed to be the ones to acknowledge those things. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you that in some circumstances, maybe these places were a safe haven for some people. And there, yeah. you know, there are survivors that say so many different things about this. And I agree with you that it's it's very interesting and there are a lot of levels to this and how it affected mm-hmm. people. Because yeah. I saw girls that were actually, you know, seriously abused. Yes, I had the mousetrap on my leg, but I also saw people that were eating bugs for attention, that were getting trampled by staff to, you know, restrain them. I mean, I did not experience that because like I said, I knew almost immediately when I was there, maybe I was kind of, you know, I would gossip or I would talk about things in a certain way, but I never would really display a huge, a huge fight because I was terrified. Yeah, no, I I remember doing the exact same thing and that's how you survive it. That's how that's how you are in this situation and you said that you were changed and I just want to coming out of the program and I want to go back to that with what you just said. Was it really worth it that you were changed because you lost that that comfort and that trust for whether it was your parents or your environment or these staff members? Like just is it is it really worth it to I just lose it's, that? It's so interesting because I'm back in a recovery situation now. I'm not mm-hmm. in a in a treatment facility. I just yeah. have facilitated a program for myself mm-hmm. and I'm recovering as we speak. Mm-hmm. And I'm a realist. And yeah. I just I really struggle with accepting this as much yeah. as I want to. I want to say to Same. myself, you know what? Like this is who I am. I'm so proud of it. Oh my gosh, I've learned so much from this. But I just have such a hard time and I will be that person to just be realistic and say, I just wish I didn't go through that. Like there were so many other layers and things. My parents are not that awful. Why did they choose to do that? I don't get it. You Mm -hmm. know, I do because like I said, the trauma, the complexities that they went through, they, they had facilitated their own experience as a child that was very independent from their families and their parents that they maybe thought that, Hey, well, we had to deal with this. Why don't we put this on our kid? Or, you know, it won't be that bad. At least they have at that point, like as a society, mental health treatment was tough love, tough love, solve these problems. They were conditioned to believe that this would work. And so it's, it's a, it's a cultural issue. It's a generational problem. There's just so many different things that factor in here and and contribute and make it not add up. I think it's so what you were saying about still not understanding. I totally have the same experience because you first of all, if anyone's conditioned to do anything for a year plus, a year and a half plus of your life and then years after when you still haven't recovered from that and then completely doing a 180 with the way you view your relationships and your interactions and your own belief systems. That work takes decades and it and it's 
extremely hard to undo. And I think something that I did learn in treatment from one of the from one of the most amazing programs that I went to was that if you're not um, progressing, you're digressing. And so I love that you're still continuing to work on yourself, which we're, we all need to do if we want to continue moving in in a positive direction, regardless of what our current mental health is at. And so I, I love that. Absolutely. And like I said, I recently in the past year had gone back into my spirituality, redeveloped my religious beliefs. And I'm also in a recovery program as well. And I'm completely sober now. And I'm Mm -hmm. so like, I can't say that I'm extremely happy and recovered. This is going to be a lifelong journey for me, Mm -hmm. but it's something that I had planted so long ago and was so ready to facilitate for myself. So I think that this came at a perfect time for us to have this discussion. So I'm And I I love it. And I think what makes me so happy is that you're doing it for yourself. It's not like however long ago when it was being forced on you. And this time it's it's for you and it's for the right reasons. And it's in an effective way, not with all of these crazy different other ways of modifying behavior. And so it's just it Again, the the goal of this is not to say that treatment doesn't work and it's and it's ineffective because that's so not the case. Treatment works and saves so many lives every single year. It's just finding programs that are using clinical studies and evidence-based treatments and using psychologists and doctors and using compassion and their care and and having staff members that that are properly trained and using again evidence-based ethical treatments especially for kids because somehow in the United States, those rights are not protected at a basic level. And it's something that's being worked towards, but we're, we're not there yet. Absolutely. And I think because of the internet, because of the powers we have and knowledge and these things are coming up now, there is no way that in 50 years, 100 years, these things will persist. Yeah. I don't believe that. I completely because agree. Because it's just not possible that people allow this to stay this way. It's yeah. not. Yes, some things will happen behind closed doors always. But as far as states allowing these places to operate. And selling these services and having a whole happen. industry. No way. It's and I'm and I'm so so glad about that and I think if there's any takeaway beyond just these this super powerful story and being more critical about the way you view these programs, kind of just getting curious with those around you. We mentioned how many people have been impacted by this industry and these experiences. I can almost guarantee that there's someone within your larger community and circle of life that has known someone or navigated this experience themselves and having that that compassion and awareness and curiosity for that experience because just like you mentioned, if it's not someone that's been through it, having someone that really truly understands is so, so hard because it's like an alien experience. It's a complete parallel dimension, this secret society within our world. And it's just, it's it's crazy and it takes years to to heal from after. It does. It does. It is such a journey, but there's so much light being shed right now on this. And like I said, the more that I live my life, the more that I meet people that have gone through these places. Mm-hmm. And it is just crazy. And it blows the mind every single time. It's crazy. And but yeah, there's so many, there's so many levels to which people rationalize and accept these places. And it's it's very interesting and beautiful to see. But mm-hmm. I do have hope for the way that we we take treatment centers and hopefully I think that some places will start to develop programs and places that really heal and help people. And there are some principles and practices from these places that absolutely work. 
but they do not need to be sustained for 20 months or a whole mm-hmm. child's years. I mean, these kids without contact with the outside world. Yeah, yeah. you need to be yeah. able to get get what you need and take it and leave and go back to a life and yeah. have the tools in check. And if you are able to facilitate that outside, great. If not, you have to learn just like everyone else in this world and yeah. in a, in the way that you're able to choose and not be forced. Mm-hmm. Completely 100% agree. And thank you so much for joining me for this episode. So powerful, such an amazing story. And it's just, it's, it's very inspiring to hear how much adversity you've gone through and survived and still been able to create a completely positive trajectory from it and build a life that that you love. And so thank you. Thank you, Sadie, for having me. Of course. In case you skipped to the end to recap the interview, Sydney and I talked about her childhood experiences of feeling really invalidated, misunderstood, and isolated, and her emotions before she went to treatment. We talked about the extremely traumatic intake process and her early days at Cross Creek and how strict program regulations were. We talked about how horrific these experiences in the troubled teen industry are from her perspective, um, having been 15 at the time of this experience. We talked about tough love, troubled teen, and behavioral modification approaches that really does result in emotional physical abuse of thousands of teens. We talk about why it's so important for teens to get ethical, evidence-based, compassionate treatment because they're at such formative points in their lives. These these experiences really do have lasting impacts. We talk about how Sydney transitioned back to life post-treatment, healed from this experience, and lastly, the attachment and abandonment that she still grapples with as a result of those 15 months that she, she spent at Cross Creek.